The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode was made possible with support from our post-secondary access and attainment impact group. This is a coalition of funders committed to an increasing the number of young people starting and completing post-secondary education or training, with a particular focus on more historically underserved populations. The idea of narrative change is gaining traction in educational circles today. We're being reminded that the stories we tell ourselves and each other about groups of individuals based on a shared characteristic, race, gender, socioeconomic status, or even family educational level, shape our collective beliefs about the needs and potential of individual members of that group. Our last episode gave us an opportunity to unpack the term first-generation college student, and we were reminded that this is not a monolithic group that the circumstances and needs of students who are the first in their family to attend college are vastly different. And this requires us to think differently about how best to serve each individual student. My guest today has channeled her personal journey into a career advocating for and changing the narratives we hold about teen and student parents. When Nicole Lynn Lewis got pregnant in high school, her first reaction one reinforced by the adults in her life, was that motherhood might end her dream of going to college and having a career. She recalls feeling ashamed, in part because of how people regarded her as a pregnant Black teenager. No one in her community, her neighborhood, her family, no one she knew had gotten pregnant and gone off to college. She recalls thinking that the future for a pregnant Black girl was working in retail or food service, not on a college degree. And yet she knew that a college degree was going to be critical to building the future she wanted for her unborn child. And though she saw no clear pathway, no supports or resources, she nevertheless enrolled at the College of William and Mary when her daughter was an infant. She graduated in four years with honors and walked with her daughter across the stage at graduation. Nicole went on to found Generation Hope, a nonprofit group that surrounds motivated teen parents and their children with the mentors, emotional support, and financial resources that they need to thrive in college and kindergarten, thereby driving a two-generation solution to poverty. Nicole is also the author of Pregnant Girl, a memoir that seeks to challenge deep-set cultural biases about poverty and parenthood. What struck me during our conversation is that Nicole's ambitions for this work go beyond the pragmatic goal of simply ensuring student parents earn the credentials they need to be gainfully employed. She pointed out that when it comes to student parents, we often fail to discuss the inherent value of college as an opportunity for individuals to discover who they are, to explore their passions, and to make decisions about how they want to show up in the world. We value this aspect of higher education when it comes to more privileged students, but default into functional conversations when discussing the lives of under-resourced students. We also rarely acknowledge the experience, skills, and capabilities that parenting students bring to classrooms, campuses, and their jobs by virtue of the fact that they learn earlier than their peers what it means to be responsible for someone other than themselves and to balance competing life priorities. As we continue to focus on centering asset-based approaches to improving educational opportunities for all young people, it's worth examining the many ways in which we fail to honor the capabilities and potential of young parents. In doing so, we neglect to build systems of support that could help them achieve their and their family's full potential. Join me for a conversation with Nicole Lynn Lewis about her journey as a mother, advocate, social entrepreneur, and author working to shift the stories we tell about student parents in America. Hi, Nicole. It's great to have you with us today. Hi, Olka. It's so wonderful to be on with you. 
So I want to start where we always start on this podcast. Our personal stories, our personal journeys are often such a big part of the work that we do. So I'm wondering if you can just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and how those experiences motivate you in your work today. Yeah. So my journey starts in New England. I was born in um, Stamford, Connecticut, and uh, was raised in New England the first half of my childhood. My uh, parents are both college educated and uh, were big advocates of education while my sister and I were growing up. Um, my mom was an art teacher and a graphic designer and a painter. And then uh, my father worked in different areas kind of adjacent to education um, and was in the Peace Corps in, in Africa. And so all of those experiences really infused my childhood, um, a lot of creativity and jazz and music and art and all of those things happening all at the same time and a real understanding that education was a priority and that I always was planning to go to college after high school. That was kind of a given in our home. And um, at the same time, I grew up with a lot of arguing, a lot of uh, instability kind of emotionally in that sense. And, um, and that deeply affected me as I was growing up. And I got to high school and was just at the point of getting accepted into a bunch of different colleges. And uh, so I was in my senior year, just a few months shy of graduation and discovered a pregnancy. I was, I was pregnant. And, you know, here I was this honor roll student, college bound, um, and involved in all of these different extracurricular activities. And then also had this positive pregnancy test and no one in my community, in my neighborhood, my family, nobody that I knew had gotten pregnant and had gone off to college. That was just not something that that you saw. And when you did see someone who who got pregnant that young, you saw them in retail or food service. You did not see them working on a college degree. So at the same time, I knew that a college degree was so important for me to be able to provide for this little one. And so I had this tension of, you know, wanting to get to college as a young mother, but not having a clear pathway or any supports or resources to get there. And so uh, I ended up graduating from high school, barely graduated because of excessive absences. I, I left my parents home in the midst of finding out I was pregnant and was sleeping in the high school parking lot and and couch surfing. And so really difficult time with my with my boyfriend at the time. And I, uh, so that next year, I took that year off and it was probably one of the most difficult years of my life. Nothing about my life said college. I was with my, my boyfriend. I was, uh, living place to place. He was selling drugs. Um, so really, really difficult experiences. And again, nothing about college in that, but I held on to that dream of going to college. That was really important to me. And I found out that I had been accepted to the College of William and Mary and Hampton University, both in Virginia, when I was eight months pregnant, living in a Motel 6. So not at all the average freshman that, you know, they envisioned on the other side of that acceptance letter. Um, I started at William and Mary when my daughter was a little under three months old. And I always tell people I stepped foot on that campus and thought, might be don't belong here. You know, I was mm -hmm. surrounded by other students and families and people who had a ton of resources and support um, and who didn't have parenting responsibilities. I was also one of very few Black students at William and Mary. And so all of those things were kind of working against me. But I thought, let me put one foot in front of the other and see where it takes me. And I'll just you know, try my hardest and, and we'll see what happens. And so that's what I did. And over the next four years, I experienced many of the things that the students that we work with and that we advocate for experience from time poverty to, uh, you know, facing eviction to not having food uh, to for dinner that night. Um, how do you afford textbooks for class and diapers and baby wipes? How do you find affordable childcare? You know, all of the things. And uh, at the same time, it was the one of the most transformative experiences of my life to be at college. And I graduated in four years with high honors. My daughter walked across the graduation stage with me. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you achieve something people tell you is impossible. It was surreal. And it was also a moment where I felt like more young parents and more parenting college students of any age should have that experience of graduating from a college, pursuing a passion, 
and being able to provide for their families. And that really was the catalyst for Generation Hope. And um, I moved up to the D.C. region. I was working on my master's degree at George Mason University, and I was looking for a nonprofit that was focused on teen parents and college completion. None existed in the D.C. region region, and very few across the country. And I thought, Hmm. you know, maybe I could do something about this. And that's really what I did. Thanks so much for sharing um, that really vulnerable story um, and and really appreciate you being willing to share um, just the realities, right, of of your story and also the the sort of hope at the end. So you're the founder and CEO of Generation Hope, um, and you describe it as a nonprofit that surrounds motivated teen parents and their children with the supports they need to thrive in college and kindergarten, which I which I really love. So tell us a bit about Generation Hope and the program model. So how do young people enter it? Who are your partners? What's the experience of a young parent and their their child um, or children as they're in your program? Yeah, so uh, we are both a direct service organization and an organization advocating for systemic change. And so on our direct service side, we have our scholar program, which is our our signature direct service program. And that has been in place since our inception. And the idea is that we want to help more young parents, mothers and fathers become college graduates, right? We know that with a college degree, the outcomes not only for you as an individual, but also for your children immediately skyrocket. And so um, we want to make sure that more young families have access to the resources and supports that they need. My lived experience very much influenced the creation of the scholar program. Um, Just being able to look back at what was hard for me, what was challenging, what was really helpful for me. And so our program is a holistic program. It doesn't just focus on academics. It doesn't just focus on an aspect of what's hard about being a young parent in college, like housing or um, childcare. It really is looking at the whole student and the whole family. And so we identified the biggest obstacles for young parents to get their college degrees, lack of emotional support, lack of financial support. And our program really wraps our families with those supports. So every student in our program is able to receive tuition assistance, Um, up to $2,400 a year to go towards their tuition costs. They also have access to an emergency fund of up to $1,000 a year to help in any crisis situation. We collect tangible items from the community, anything from laptops to diapers to baby wipes to gas cards that really help to ease the financial burdens of going to to school and being a parent. And then um, on the emotional side, we have a robust mentoring program where we match each of our students with caring individuals in the community who are essentially cheerleaders, people who will encourage them to keep going when it gets hard and we know it will get hard, right? Um, and uh, just a listening ear, someone who is really in your corner. And we also have an incredible uh, program team that we call Hope Coaches, and our Hope Coaches are working really closely with the student on anything that comes up. So it might be, let's talk about your classes for the semester, but it also could be, you just had this domestic violence incident. We need to talk about how to support you in this moment and make sure you and your child are safe. Um, And then we do things all year round to bring the whole community together to really build that village that we know is so critical for anybody to get through college, but certainly for young parents. And so we have trainings throughout the year, Um, We do social events like Valentine's Day parties, and now we're also doing this work in New Orleans with families, so we're having a Mardi Gras party in New Orleans, um, holiday parties, all sorts of things that really build those bonds. We take them on field trips. Um, And then we're also, we have a career readiness program where we're helping them not just get through college, but get that family-sustaining job after college. We have on-staff licensed mental health professionals that work with both parent and child, So again, you know, what I like to say is there's nothing that could come up for our families that Generation Hope is not going to stand in the gap, you know, with our families for. Uh, So they can come to us with anything. And the idea is that when we when we do that work and when we wrap them with those resources and support, that they are more likely to get their degree. I just want to clarify when you talk about, um, you know, going through college, is your work primarily with four-year institutions? Is it with two-year institutions? Are there different pathways or are the students that you're working with at a university that becomes a university-based partner? So it's really all led by the student. So we are, we basically work with the schools that our students choose to go to. 
So in the D.C. region, our scholars are attending 20 different two and four year schools. Um, in the New Orleans area, I believe they're at seven different two and four year schools um, in New Orleans. And we just launched our New Orleans program. And so this is our first year. I imagine that number of seven will continue to grow as we continue to work with more families in New Orleans. But it really is about them choosing. About 60% of our incoming class each year is attending a two-year school. And then we're working with them when they, if they decide to transfer to a four-year, which about 90% of them do, then we support them through that transfer process to a four-year school. And we see it through and work with them until they earn their bachelor's degree. So I, I just want to ask for you to to share a little bit about the thinking about both two and four year colleges, just because over the last kind of 15 to 20 years, there really has been a push about four year university degrees as kind of the pathway to success. And so, you know, I, I'm curious, given the landscape of work, given the landscape of the economy costs and then your student population, why two year universities and how should people be thinking today about the relative advantages of, of both kinds of programs and other pathways? ways. Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly a four-year degree is going to bring more earning power to a family, right? And so um, that we have to acknowledge that. We have to name that. We also have to name the fact that that four-year schools aren't always accessible to students, particularly students that have been marginalized within education systems like teen parents and student parents. And so community colleges play such a significant role in creating access that just isn't always there um, when it comes to four-year schools. And so you're going to find a large share of student parents at community colleges. They are just um, wonderful organizations and institutions that are deeply embedded in the community and are really focused on inclusion, right? And that is so important, particularly for this population, but also as we think about first-generation college students, as we think about um, uh, students of color, like all different populations that we know have been marginalized uh, within within higher education. And I would also say that, that you know, supporting community colleges and really um, encouraging students to go to community colleges doesn't mean that that's where they stop. I, I mentioned a statistic at Generation Hope where 90% of our students who are attending community colleges transfer to a four-year school. And so it really is a pathway and it's a door-opening opportunity for students. And I think we've got to do more to change the narrative around community colleges and the stigma that is that is you know unfairly assigned to community colleges because they are incredible pathways for students and they're wonderful organizations that really care deeply about the community. Thanks. I appreciate um, appreciate that. So when we first spoke, we had a, a brief discussion about how leaders of color in the education space often have two versions of how we talk about our work, that one is often a version that the powers that be want to hear, whether it's funders or policymakers, and the other is a version that kind of reflects our understanding of the nuances and complexities of the human beings that we work with and the lives they want to lead. So I'm curious, could you share what you've learned from the young parents you work with about what they really want for themselves, for their lives, for their children, um, that might be different than, you know, the, the kind of narratives or the things that we hear in some of the hallways of power? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I saw in my own journey that I see time and time again in the journey of the students that we we have the honor and privilege of working with is that clearly there's this monetary gain to earning a post-secondary credential. Um, and that speaks to, right, the economic mobility that comes from graduating from college. But I think what is less talked about and that is so, so important is the experience of, of higher education, which allows individuals to really discover who they are, discover what their passions are, um, learn things that they might never learn, right, in any other context or place. Um, and just having the freedom to be able to, and the space to be able to discover what is important to you and what you want to do in the world is less talked about, but is so important. And it's less talked about um, when it comes to students that don't have a ton of resources, under-resourced students. We talk about this like, self-exploration that every affluent student or a student, you know, who has the means to go to college should have. Like, 
have that year of like going hiking around the world, mm-hmm. right? And and don't rush to work and really figure out what you want to do. Those are things that we say to students that have the means and the resources to go to school. We don't give that same space and freedom to under-resourced students. And I think that's really um, unfair. And it's so important. We hear from our graduates, we have alums that are working in fields like cybersecurity and they're teaching their you know, third grade teachers and their um, education nonprofit professionals. Uh, we've hired them onto our staff. And what I, I hear time and time again is the freedom that that college gave them to just figure out who they are and what they want to do and how they want to show up in the world. And that is something that I, I want us to talk more and more about alongside the economic gains of the post-secondary credential. Mm, I really appreciate that. And I also, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking about the reality that in this period of life between 16 and 24, I imagine many of your students are that age, as we're integrating a sense of our own identities, being a parent is a very singular identity. As a, Becoming a mother made me, I think, a much better person in terms of being able to see the world in nuanced ways and maybe meet other people in different ways that when I wasn't a mother, that was there. And so I also think that's a, it's, it's one of those conversations where we don't asset frame young parents, right? As with all the gifts and strengths they they bring because they are parents that is really different than a student who just is still living their own life um, for only themselves. So yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of the things when we're talking to higher ed leaders, I'll often ask them is when you think about student parents, do you view them as an asset or a liability? Mm. And I think it's a real moment to do exactly what you said, which is to kind of reframe our thinking around this. And in reality, these are leaders, like they are leading their homes. They're juggling multiple things. They know what it's like to have competing priorities and have to make really tough decisions on a daily basis. They have lived experience that can enrich the conversations that we have in our classroom. So I think absolutely um, looking at at these individuals as having so much to contribute to any room that they enter. So you are an author. Um, your book, uh, Pregnant Girl, A Story of Teen Motherhood, College, and Creating a Better Future for Young Families was reviewed by the New York Times. It was named one of NPR's best books of 2021. So first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, I got myself a copy um, after we first met, and I'm really loving it. But in it, you talk about the need to disrupt inaccurate narratives about teen parents, and we've just started talking about those. But what what are some other narratives? And why are they so harmful? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for picking up a copy and, and for reading it. I know we're all incredibly busy. Um, I There are so many narratives when it comes to, I think more broadly, families that are experiencing poverty. Um, and certainly when we think about teen parents and student parents, one of the big ones is that they lack ambition. They don't care about their education. They're not committed or focused and therefore are not worthy of resources and supports, right? And I think as with every uh, damaging narrative, there is an, an impact. And what happens is when we we subscribe to those narratives, then we think it's okay to withhold resources from that population, right? Um, one of the, the, like I said, the, the idea that they lack ambition, that they're not committed to their education, I have been just always so blown away by the students that we get to work with and and be a small part of their journeys. They are so committed to being both a parent and being in college. We have students in our program that are earning 4.0s, 3.8s. Like with, I think a lot of times when people think about this population, they're thinking, oh, they're just getting by, right? Like they're probably just barely getting by. And we know that on average across the country, parenting college students have higher GPA than their non-parenting peers. And so I think it's just really clear that that narrative, that there is this, you know, lack of ambition, that they don't care, that they're not committed, that they're not cognitively able uh, to do this work is so off base and unfortunately is used, as I said, to then say, well, they don't need more Pell Grants. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't need to have emergency funds in case there's something, a crisis that comes up. They don't need more access to higher education. 
So um, it's it's really frustrating to know that that's not true, but then to also see the outcome of, of those narratives. So just to drill down a little bit more specifically, in the book you you talk about, and I'm quoting, you talk about the bad habits of practitioners, policymakers, sometimes even educators too. You say erroneously build interventions that define young people by a single moment in their lives. So what are examples? Because I know Generation Hope is both a direct service provider and you also advocate for policies. So what are the kinds of interventions that are really problematic and based on the work that you're doing with young people, what are better ways for us to care for and empower teen parents and and student parents? Well, I think if you look at even in the K through 12 system, a great example if we're talking specifically about teen parents is the practice of when a student becomes pregnant, removing them from the school and from the classroom and and kind of putting them on a track in an alternative school or some some other uh, school that may be taking them away from friends, that may be taking them away from great learning opportunities. And it's just a huge trauma and disruption in their lives. That's a great example of defining that student by this one singular moment of becoming pregnant and telling them that you're no longer worthy of being in this space and and this is no longer a space where you belong, which has huge impacts for the rest of their life, whether they decide to go on to college, whether they're able to finish high school, all sorts of things, either the ripple effects that come from that. I think another example is um, uh, if we look at larger public policy, one of the things that we really advocate for is is for states as they're defining their requirements for families to access cash benefit programs, so TANF programs in their state, to be able to include the time an individual, a parent spends in a classroom towards the hours of work that are required for them to access cash benefits. And that's important because what ends up happening is if you're only counting actual work hours in front of a cash register, it disincentivizes someone from going and pursuing a college degree or pursuing a post-secondary credential that could then get them in a situation where they no longer need those cash benefits. So saying to a an individual, a parent, you're only able to go to work at this supermarket, right? That is what you're able to do is really defining them in that moment as putting a cap on, on what is possible for them. And not allowing them to have that opportunity to say, well, maybe I do want to go to college. Maybe there is something more that I want to do in terms of a career. So again, really defining people at these moments and saying, this is all that's possible for you. Um, this moment is really defining you as a whole person and what what your entire life needs to look like. I think we're constantly doing that at various points in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Based on your own experiences and also the students that you work with, I'm curious where students find it most difficult to either overcome or inoculate themselves against the narratives that they start to hear, whether they're, you know, uh, before graduation or in college. I hope that makes sense. I hope that question makes sense. But I'm just curious, like the personal experience of those that you're working with and where are the challenges that come from themselves shifting into an asset-based frame about themselves and their potential when the rest of the world is often telling them something really different? No, I think it's a great question because it's incredibly hard, particularly for the student parent and teen parent population. You know, teen parents are highly, highly stigmatized and um, marginalized. And, you know, you'll often bring up teen pregnancy in any conversation. People have very strong opinions and views about teen pregnancy Mm -hmm. and really see it as a black and white issue. And really, it's these shades of gray, you know, in between. And um, it's connected to all of these other issues, race and poverty and gender and all of these other things that we have a lot of work to do on. And so from from the beginning, you're hearing these messages as a young person that teen parents are bad, that they don't care about their education, that they're not worthy of resources, that they take advantage of resources. And so um, and they can't go to college. Like when I got pregnant, that was one of the very first messages that I heard from teachers, from friends, from family. You're not going to go to college. You're not going to be successful. And so how do you counter that, right? It takes a lot in terms of your own individual ability to say, I see something else for myself and I need to push past all of that. 
in addition to how hard it is on a day-to-day basis, like it is incredibly hard to be a young mother or young father up against so much. Your life situation often tells you that those narratives are right, right? Like that, that it is too difficult. Um, what we have seen is that there is safety in people and relationships. And one of the things that, um, that we really stress in our program model, again, one of, coming from my own experience as a young mother is really investing in relationships. So mentoring, um, being an organization that is built around a, being a safe space and a non-judgmental space. And how do we articulate that as soon as we, we start interacting with young people? Um, so all of those things go to, you know, really people have been huge, huge, powerful forces encountering that narrative for young parents to be able to say, absolutely, you can go to college and let's work together and figure this out. For me, I had a high school principal who was very, um, you know, instrumental in my situation. I had an amazing financial aid counselor who moved mountains for me when I was in college. And so thinking about, and I think if we think about this, you know, broader, how do we create organizations, schools, spaces, social service agencies, that are really focused on people and relationships and countering the negative stereotypes and narratives that can keep people from ever walking through our doors. Hmm. Thanks. So I want to just ask you, uh, come back a little bit from the work and ask about your book journey. Um, I think uh, book publishing is not something most of us think about until we've had to go through the experience um, (laughs) of trying to get an idea into the world and navigate the world of publishing. So when did you first conceive of your book idea and what was your journey when it came to, and I'll phrase it this way, and this may not be fair, but convincing the publishing world that you had a story that was worth sharing and that you were worthy of their investment um, in making that happen? Yeah, I think that's a very fair um, statement or her question. Um, I started the process of writing this book in 2007. I was I had graduated from college just a few years before, and I was out in the working world and would talk to people. You know, you get to know your coworkers and they're asking you about your, your life journey stuff and your career in college. And I would share that I was a mother and that when I started undergrad, I had a three month old baby and, you know, went to a school like William and Mary, which is, which is pretty academically rigorous. And people would say, wait a minute, like that is not a story that you hear. And, and that's a story that needs to be out there. I had always loved writing from a very young age. I, I had a nickname of being the paper eater in my house because <laughs> I was literally like shopping lists and receipts and my mom would be like, where is this thing that I had on the <laughs> counter, this piece of paper? And I would like write a poem on it. Um, and so I always loved writing. And so I was like, well, maybe I could write, you know, my story. And so I started writing it. And uh, and after I was done with like the first draft of the manuscript, I started reaching out to literary agents and publishers and telling them like, I have this idea. And it, it was also like around the time 16 and Pregnant was really a big mm show um, um, on MTV. So it felt like, oh, this is very relevant, right? It's out in the news. It's it's something. And I had so many doors just shut in my face. Um, literary agents and publishers who are like, you, no one wants to hear about teen parents being successful. And also you don't have a platform. You know, you don't have enough platform. of a platform. Yes. yes. Where's your platform? And I was like, really, you know, it was really um, frustrating on on all the levels. And so, but I thought, let me table it. And in the meantime, I launched a whole nonprofit organization. I went and founded Generation Hope a few years later. And so years went by and I was in a, in a training on scaling your, your nonprofit organization. And the facilitator was talking about one of the ways to scale is, is to inspire people to do the work. And you could do that through a book. And I thought, well, I have this book, you know, at least part of a book or a first draft that I could dust off and let me revisit this. Now I have a little bit of a larger platform, you know, like, let's see. And so I put it out into the universe that I wanted to publish this book. I was connected to one of my board members with with um, someone who then connected me to my literary agent. And um, she was amazing. Um, and Joanne B. Jarby, and she was like, this is something I can I can get, you know, sink my teeth into. I love what your vision is. I love what you're doing at Generation Hope. 
And she, she shopped it around to different publishers. And I was really fortunate to land at Beacon Press, which is a social justice publisher. And they, you know, published James Baldwin and like all of these amazing people. Um, and, and they believed in the book as well. And we're really excited to work together. Um, so it was a 13 year journey. <laughs> it was a long time. And what I tell people is what I've learned a lot is the fact that the suppression of the voices of women and particularly um, women of color and black women is very real. We see it in all sectors in every system and we see it in the publishing world. And that is something that I didn't have an appreciation for, as you said, until you publish a book and you're working on something and, and it's very clear and very evident. And so I always think how many stories are we missing out on every day because you know, because of what we have to fix in the publishing field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask what advice you would offer, but it sounds like you would offer the advice, go out and shop it. Although I'm curious if you have sort of really tactical advice, right, for women, women of color, people of color, uh, more generally, about where to go to find support, right, around that journey of having doors shut in your face and having to remember again for ourselves, the narrative is not that our story isn't worth telling, but rather other people can't hear it yet. And so, so I'm curious if you have any other, any sort of more concrete, tangible advice about where folks can go to learn more and to kind of find that community of folks? Yeah, I think what's been encouraging is that over the last several years, I've seen more of the effort in the publishing world to um, to uplift these voices. And so there are publishing houses and efforts that have really come together to say, how do we make sure that we get more of these voices published, right? And I think the author of Gone Girl, of course, her name is escaping me, but the author of Gone Girl um, has her own imprint that she has launched that is specifically for women of color and like uplifting those voices. So I think that's a great example of we're seeing more and more of that that's coming mm-hmm. forward. We have so much work to do. So this is like a drop in the bucket. We, you know, we don't have enough um, uh, representation among literary agents and publishers and um, those working in publishing houses to be able to say, you know, I love this project and let me bring it on the team. And that's part of the problem. But I do think that there's been more awareness of mm-hmm. um, how do we get, you know, more of these stories out into the world and and really some action behind it. There's also a lot of work to do in, in the advance. Like when an author does get a publishing deal, we know that if you're an author of color, you're not getting as large of a, a, an advance to work on mm-hmm. your book as white authors. So again, we have, I think there's more awareness around that. I don't know that there's been as much action around that, but there are some encouraging things that are happening. Yeah, no. And it's also been great to see that some of the smaller imprints and houses are being now more picked up. But I remember learning that if you went through independent houses, for example, you couldn't be reviewed by the New York Times or right. you didn't get onto the library list. So libraries literally don't know about your book. Yes. So it's all of this is changing. It's just part of the broader work. But thanks for um, for kind of sharing that. I think it's always helpful to hear from folks who are like, this was a 14, 20 year journey. And, you, <laughs> and, uh, and people I don't think you, you woke up and wrote a book and that I is know. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also believe that things happen when they're meant to happen. Yes. And so very possibly had you written it or published it when you first wrote it, maybe it wouldn't have had quite the totally. same impact um, yes. that it has today. Um, so you have received so many recognitions, I won't list them all, but um, you've been recognized as a luminary and received a million dollar grant from the 1954 Projects Boulder Fund. You're a CNN hero, a Rosalind S. Jaffe award winner um, for Everyday Heroes. Um, what insights from your own journey would you offer to other aspiring and early stage social entrepreneurs specifically? I think some of the things that I, as I look back on our journey, you know, I founded Generation Hope in 2010. So we're about, um, I guess we're about 13 years old now, um, is, is the importance of surrounding yourself with really smart, incredible people who will challenge you and who will support you and who will advocate for you. Um, I think has been part of my secret sauce. I have just an incredible team on both the staff level and our board. And that has been something very intentional for me since the beginning is like, how do I get these incredible smart people around me who can help me take the work to the next level? Um, I think particularly for founders, 
the importance of of really giving people the freedom to run and innovate with with what essentially began as your idea. Um, I, I've heard from people that, you know, oh, I thought you might be a nightmare founder. <laughs> like, I think a lot of people have been have been around folks who are afraid to give up, uh, you know, um, the idea and let it become what it needs to become in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm very much uh, the opposite. You know, I, I want people to come in and make us better and make us more impactful. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Um, another thing that has worked for me and that I think we're talking about more and more is really being, you know, driven by the voices of those that you serve. Generation Hope is a very different organization today than it was in 2010. Not only have we grown in an incredible way, we started out serving 17 mothers and colleges across the D.C. region. We're now at 200 teen mothers and fathers across New Orleans and and DC, but then we also do this national work, you know, working with colleges and universities and policymakers, and we have an early childhood program and all of that growth. Um, much of it has been influenced by listening to the families that we serve and hearing from them. I wish I had a college that was more family inclusive or what would help me is if I had some support on being a, uh, um, uh, my child's first teacher and having resources in the home. I want more mental health support. It's hard for me to get that at a college campus. Those kinds of conversations have been so important in the evolution of Generation Hope and it becoming the organization we are today. So I think it's surrounding yourself with smart people, um, really uh, listening to the people that you serve and not just listening, but putting those ideas into action. Um, And then caring deeply about your staff. Um, I think sometimes organizations grow and they grow rapidly and you forget that the people on your team are the people who are actually doing the work and you have to really care deeply about them and invest in supporting your team and growing the team and making sure they have what they need. Um, those are probably, you know, three of the things that I think I, I would mention. And all of that takes resources. Um, and so we do have funders, you know, who are listening um, to this podcast. And I'm curious what you would say to them. Well, let me let me start first by asking, when you were first getting started, what were the challenges in describing the work that you wanted to do and the challenges in bringing funders kind of on board? And this is part of a broader conversation about, you know, the tension between how we want, how we know our work is and what it is versus what people want to hear, especially people with money and power. So what were some of those challenges and what did you learn about how you balance your vision of what you want to do with the realities of having to get funding, especially in the early stages? I think in the early stages, it was, I mean, one big thing was working with a highly stigmatized population. I had funders tell me that, you know, this is not going to work because it's too difficult to support teen parents in college. Like that's going to be really hard. You're not going to be able to recruit mentors. So um, a distrust, I think, of, of my vision and leadership, but also of the people um, that we were talking about really wrapping with these resources and support. And and um, again, the narratives playing out and in, in, in having an impact in my ability to build resources for the organization. Um, I would also say as, as a Black woman leading this organization, what was particularly hard in, in the beginning and continues to be a challenge is getting in the room and just being able to get connected to uh, funders to be able to pitch my idea at all was incredibly hard. Um, and, uh, and I think that continues to be the case is like, how do you get your foot in the door? Um, I would often, and I still have this, I have people say, is this a hobby? Is this something that you do on the side? And so I think this idea that a black woman could not grow an organization, you know, to a certain level and a certain point. So not being taken seriously, um, I think has also been something definitely in the beginning where, where um, you know, I was trying to have those critical conversations, get my foot in the door and still not be taken seriously as a leader in the space. Um, but even still, I'll, I have, you know, here we are, Generation Hope is 38 employees strong in two cities and $7.6 million budget. And I still have people say to me, is this a hobby? Is this something that you do on the side? That's, um, that's so, so crazy. Yeah. I can't believe that. Yes. It's it's so I think those kinds of things of the distrust and um and the the not being willing to take a conversation and to get to know an organization 
unless there's a stamp of approval by, you know, someone in your network or someone that you know, I think can create huge barriers for leaders of color in particular, but definitely all startups to be able to have those critical conversations. Um, and there's a lot of other things like general operating funding, right? And and a multi-year funding and having the flexibility and the freedom to be able to use the dollars in the way that you know your community really needs it. Um, but but yeah, the, those are some of the ones that I would name. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask about sort of impact and measurement. And, you know, if again, especially in the beginning where you're starting a program and probably, you know, maybe it was smaller than maybe an intervention that was just, you know, kind of more surface level, how would you have wanted funders to have valued in terms of the impacts that you were having and how they counted them or how they allowed you to measure them, especially in those kind of like first three to four years when you were just getting ramped up and both standing up in organization and doing the work? I think the best measure in the early stages, like I said, we started with seven mothers. We went to 11 and then I think we went to 20. Um, so again, not huge numbers in our first years. And I definitely had pushback from funders who were like, you don't have enough, you know, students to be able to show that your model is, is having impact. Qualitative was big. Um, I, I mean, I think is big. And so if an organization is too small to have uh, significant numbers to be able to evaluate, um, quantitatively, I think having discussions, you know, doing site visits or having a conversation with those that they're serving, gathering testimonials, I think is really important. I valued funders who said, look, you're small. We'll start with a smaller grant and some, some, you know, uh, this isn't our typical grant size, but because we're small and we believe in where you're going and we want to follow you and provide some support to get you to that point where you have a larger number of, of folks that you're serving, we're going to provide you with a smaller grant. And that was always wonderful because it really it communicated to us that you believe in our work, you believe in the vision and where we're going, you want to help us get there. And then when we do get there, we have the relationship to be able to get the larger the larger grant. So I think, you know, are there some introductory kind of grants that you can do with smaller organizations that help them to get the numbers that you want to see, as opposed to saying, come back and talk to us in two or three years, but not providing any of the resources to help you get there. I think it, that's always the tough part is like, you know, you'll hear from funders will call me when, and then you're like, but how do I, uh-huh. <laughs> how do yeah. I get to that when, right? Without having funders who are willing to, to provide some resources. So I think particularly in those early stages, the qualitative feedback is really great. And I and 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 organizations will have that, right? That's not something that they're going to struggle to get. But then also those introductory grants or those smaller grants to help them get to this to that stage is I think really important. And I'm curious, are you tracking outcomes for the the children? Um, that you were serving in terms of, because now what, some of them are teenagers um, in middle school, yes. um, almost in high school. Yeah. And I'm curious, what are the, what are the outcomes for them? We heard a little bit about the the teen parents and students that you're working with, but how about their children? Yeah. It's always frustrating to see our scholars, kids come back and be in middle school and high school. <laughs> Reminder of how long you're we've like, been doing I'm this old. work. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you're a toddler. Um so we, so a couple of things, we, in our early childhood program, Next Generation Academy, we do track outcomes for our scholars, little ones, um, because what we're doing is while we're helping a parent get their college degree, we're simultaneously helping their children get ready for kindergarten. And so we do some assessments and really are able to track their progress around their social emotional learning, their, um, their literacy skills, their motor skills. Um, all sorts of things. And again, a big piece of it is their parents and their parents feeling like they really have the, the supports and the resources to be their child's first teacher. So really tracking that as well. Um, we follow them um, through their, uh, uh, now we've just adjusted it so that it's not only kindergarten, but I think we go up to second grade. So we follow them through that. Um, and that's been wonderful to be able to see. And we've definitely seen really positive outcomes for our little ones in Next Generation Academy all the way up through second grade. Um and what we have just released um, this year was a report that really tracked our alums over our 13-year history to see where they are now and how a college degree has really impacted their lives. And we've seen just incredible things like their earnings, 
you know, more than doubling after earning a college degree, being in some wonderful careers and really pursuing their passions. About 30% of our graduates go on to pursue a master's degree, which is huge because we know that less than 2% of teen moms even get a college degree before age 30. So um, I say that to say we didn't necessarily um, survey their kiddos in that Mm -hmm. report. But that's the big question that's come from people is like, and yeah. what about their kids? And so I think what we what we're thinking about is what could that look like if we were able to really do a report on where our our alums children are in their own educational journeys, because we do have some that are in high school even now, um, which would be really impactful. And it's been promising, I think, to see more people talking about and thinking about two-gen approaches. So, you know, I think the more data we can collect, I mean, intuitively, you imagine, of course, it makes a difference. And uh, and because everyone wants data and evidence, it's always great yes. to have it. <laughs> so um, as we wrap up, is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to? I would just say, I think on the systemic change side, I think it's so important um, you know, one of the things that I love about what we do at Generation Hope is that we work directly with families. Uh, the other thing I love is that we take the learnings and the insights that we gain from working directly with families into these systemic change spaces. So we partner with colleges and universities all across the country through a technical assistance program called Family U. And, and that program is all about creating college campuses that are family inclusive. The vast majority of colleges don't even track the parenting status of their students. This is not a population that is on the radar of, of colleges and universities. So it's it's really hard to expect that student parents will be successful in higher education when most institutions are not prepared to really serve them. And so I'm so proud of the work that we're doing through Family U. And then working with policymakers at the federal and local level has also been a big priority for us over the past several years. And um, we have a local and federal public policy agenda that's really driven by parenting students so that we're elevating their voices. We're asking them what should the solutions be and getting them in front of policymakers. And and so I love kind of being able to do the direct work with families, but then also being able to say, here's what we're learning and what we're seeing and bringing them in with us into those larger conversations. Well, thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being on to share it. It was so great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. U-L-C-C-A.com.